Hello, and welcome to Inside Policy Talks, the premier video podcast of the Macdonald Laurier Institute, Ottawa's most influential public policy think tank. Learn more about our work at macdonaldlaurier.ca. Well, welcome to Inside Policy Talks, the in-house podcast of the McDonald laurie Institute. I'm Aaron Woodrick, the Director of the Domestic Policy Program. I'm very pleased to be joined today by one of our senior fellows and the Professor of uh, professor of Law at the Bore Alaskan Faculty of Law, Ryan Alford. Ryan, thanks for joining me. Always a pleasure, Aaron. Well, we're going to talk today uh, about the decline in the rule of law, um, which is uh, a very hot topic to say the least. Um, especially in the in the current context, we find ourselves with a lot of these protests um, regarding the Israel-Gaza conflict um, and a lot of debates around the, the lack of enforcement of these protests. Um, are the police drawing the lines in the right places? And, and you know, what are reasonable expectations from Canadians? And, uh, and if we're not happy with the status quo, um, you know, how can we address this going forward? Um, so maybe, maybe Brian, we could sort of start with the with the broad issue here, which is the rule of law, which is the enforcement of the law as it stands. And you know, you are uh, you are an expert in this area and are, have been able to uh, uh, sort of recount, uh, trace the decline in the in the rule of law in this country. So maybe you could sort of give us the Coles Notes version of what has happened to rule of law uh, in Canada in recent years. I guess the key problem that we have is the notion that the boundaries for police enforcement are not consistent with uh, uniform and neutral principles, but rather that they're being selectively enforced based upon political considerations. Because at that point, you start to lose faith in the notion that it really is a law in the sense of something being of general application and being neutrally applied, guiding the behavior of the authorities and it becoming more about politics. So essentially, you can think about the demise of the rule of law being about the concomitant rise of the rule of politics, or at least the perception of that rise. Okay. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have identified uh, a big change going back to 2010. There was a large protest in Toronto around the G20. Um, A lot of people argue, probably fairly, that the police were very heavy-handed in that exercise. And ever since, there's been a reluctance um, from police to crack down hard. Now, some people see that as a good thing. They see that as, you know, uh, giving uh, more liberal space to protesters. But on the flip side, we've seen examples, you know, some very brazen examples, things like Caledonia, rail blockades, the convoy might fall into that, um, uh, church burnings, where the pol- the authorities have seemed uh, unwilling uh, to, uh, to act or very reluctant to act. So I guess it's a question of the pendulum swinging. Um, and so, I mean, do, do I mean, do you agree, first of all, that there has been, was, was that a seminal moment? Are there other factors here that I'm, uh, that I'm missing? Well, it absolutely was. And I think that we have to remember that people in the police force and related agencies are human beings and they respond to incentives. Right. And if you have lawsuits that name them personally, that say you're going to be liable for these illegal practices, it's going to change their behavior. But the problem that you have is, what if there's no countervailing incentive on the other side? What if they just decide, well, the way to stay out of trouble is to essentially sit things out? And the, the policing of the G20 was very complicated. Uh, and, and the rulings of the courts as to how protesters' rights, their charter rights were infringed was a correct one. But there was also a problem of under-enforcement. So, I mean, if you go back to those large-scale protests around what was called the, global, the anti-globalization movement, you find there's criminal actors, people engaged in sabotage, breaking of windows, things like this. And they were not really the focus of the police. 
Uh, right. A lot more enforcement was on kind of shutting down mass disruptive protests. Ah. So there was both an under enforcement problem and an yeah. over enforcement problem based on resources, things of this nature, political incentives. And look, now the problem is you tell them, well, okay, don't enforce this. It, it's not as if there wasn't already some pressure to 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 make good use of police resources to make sure right. that there wouldn't be injuries on the part of police. The chasing black bloc protesters can lead to you know uh, right. Uh, injuries on the part of police officers so when you tell them okay well, you're only going to get in trouble when you over police then what do you see and then the problem is when something serious happens and it becomes clear that in order to have rule of law which requires laws to be enforced quite naturally then they, they become vulnerable to the charge perhaps even more than before that this is all about politics and that's a really destructive dynamic Right. And is it is it fair to say that police have uh, recognized that if they get into hot water like they did in G20, you know, the politicians will throw them under the bus. So this comes back to your rule of politics is that they, you know, not only are worried about, you know, personal liability, but they're going to be the villains in all of this, even though, you know, police are charged with enforcement of the law. And if we create all these disincentives for them to enforce it, um, who who will enforce the law when and if it needs to be enforced, even if sometimes it's sticky. So um, well, we've seen this recently at the Rouleau Commission. And I thought right. it was really unfortunate that so much time was spent by senior political figures bashing the police, saying that they weren't doing their jobs. And it was quite interesting because there was quite a lot of credible testimony on the part of police as to, to explain exactly what they were doing and why they were doing it and what they were not doing and why they were not doing it. And rather than pay close attention to what those senior um, uh, police figures were saying, we just bought into a narrative of politicians who ultimately bear the responsibility for a deflection, um, of, on, and particularly on the key question of whether or not emergency measures were required. Because it was pretty clear that when the politicians decided that something needed to be done, it was done by the police without any hesitation whatsoever. Right. Well, and that leads me to my next question, which is uh, this longstanding principle that, you know, the political level does not interfere with police decisions at the operational level. And that and there's a reason for that principle, right? We don't want a situation where politicians are essentially sending out police to crack heads, you know, for whatever reason. And so there is this this uh, this this rule, for lack of a better word, that police don't tell uh, sorry, politicians don't tell police how to do their jobs. Um, but how would we reconcile this with um, if there's a situation where police effectively aren't doing their jobs in, in, in the view of a lot of the public, what can politicians do? I mean, I know we saw the prime minister recently paid a visit to Toronto, had a meeting, I think, with the police chief. Not clear what was said. You know, how far can politicians go? What's an appropriate thing for politicians to signal? Is it a matter of public statements they make? Is it a matter of, I don't care how you do this, but you need to address this problem? What's the right line there and, and what can we expect of our politicians? I mean, I think we need a broad cultural change where the police feel supported by politicians. The amount of criticism that's levied at police forces, including around particular incidents. So I, I don't want to name names, but at various points, the prime minister of Canada in the last 10 years has commented on pending criminal prosecutions and talked about how you know, the police may or may not have behaved inappropriately. Um, this is really unacceptable. I mean, it's not at the level that we see it in the United States, but it seems as if it's very easy for politicians to get on the side of public opinion right now by blaming the police who do an incredibly difficult job. And I think that it begins with that recognition, the recognition that 
the police make mistakes in the context of doing an incredibly difficult job. And in general, the attitude of, the, of um, political figures towards the police should be one of support. Right. I, I don't know why you think you're going to have people signing up for these jobs. And of course, there's also a parallel to the Canadian military when the institution itself is subjected to criticism of, of such a searing and sustained nature. So there has to be kind of a general sense that this is dangerous when we do this. We should be very careful about lambasting the police, accusing them of, you know, kind of being implicated via systemic racism and all of these these processes, uh, because it really makes it more difficult for them to do their job. Um, and then with the question of particular direction, I think that if there's uh, the right line at the top, it's going to be about, well, you need to enforce the law. I think that is an appropriate statement to be made. When you start to tell senior police figures exactly how to do it, right, you start to get into trouble, not just because there's this breakdown of, of, of proper uh, uh, limitations on authority, but because you don't have the on the ground knowledge. Right. You do not, and, and again, in the Rulo Commission, that was very clear, right? right. People, senior police figures were saying, oh, we're already doing these things. Why do you think we're not doing that? This is what we need. Why are you not providing this to us? Why are, right. you, why are you telling us that this is the way forward just based on some abstract consideration, which, and this is where it starts to get particularly problematic, is based on polling, is based on some kind of political pressure, things of that nature. So it's, I don't think it's ever inappropriate for people in the political sphere to talk about how there is support for the police forces, mm -hmm. They want them to do their job. They want the public to be seen that the police are doing their job. But then when they encounter resistance on particular things, that they, that they start to say, OK, well, there is an appropriate limit to authority here. I can ask questions. I can find out right. why it appears a certain way. But then to say, well, you need to do a particular thing is probably overstepping the appropriate limits of political authority. I wonder, is it appropriate for uh, politicians to openly muse in public about a lack of enforcement? Is that itself throwing police under the bus? And so, in other words, should it be a matter of them behind closed doors saying to, to police, you know, there's public concern because I can, you know, politicians will always react to public opinion. But in effect, questioning the police publicly is is throwing them under the bus and signaling to police that we don't have your back here. We're trying to deflect public anger onto onto you. Well, it's always suspect when a senior political figure who could pick up the phone and immediately get a senior executive official, a police chief online, it muses in public in the way that you describe. I don't think they speak off the cuff in this way. They've made a decision that for the, the, for the purpose of political positioning, they're going to say something in public rather than have a much more productive discussion with that individual. Right. And I think that people, when they see that, should be much more critical of that. It's like, well, okay... Um, it's, it's strange, you know, it's, maybe somebody should do something about that, right? And, and for them to pose as someone who can do nothing merely right. because they can't precisely direct what's going on, that's not a helpful attitude. I don't think we would accept that from senior managers. The notion that I don't have complete control over this process, so, you know, don't blame me. There's there's nothing right. that I can do about it. Instead, I'm going to, to mention publicly the fact that I don't like what I'm seeing from other more subordinate individuals with more constraints on their behavior. Right. I wonder, is, it, is there an analogy here with ministerial responsibility for staff, right? I mean, it's sort of the price of doing business. When you're a cabinet minister, if one of your, you know, senior political staff or senior bureaucrats does something inappropriate, you you have to take the spear. You are the one responsible at the top, even though you may not have been privy to all the details and had full control. That's you've, just... you've been in charge. You've right. been the person there for all this period. So you're starting to see hesitation and anxiety on the part of senior police officials 
as to whether or not they're going to be hung out to dry. Why is it that they think that? Does it have anything to do with the kind of regime that you've had in place whereby you've created these incentives? And that's what we need to hold politicians accountable for. Right, right. Um, maybe we could kind of turn to, uh, you know, ways, and we may have touched on this in a previous conversation, on how we strike the right balance with a lot of these protests, right? I mean, there are some competing interests here and we can get into the specifics of some of the protests particularly the these protests on in, on avenue road in toronto on the one hand of course we have free expression in this country we have the right we want a robust space for free speech on the other hand there are arguments that some of the behaviors in various protests whether it's in terms of uh, uh words or the um you know the actions being taken at these protests that these are crossing the line this is not protected speech um, so how do we separate the the wheat from the chaff here how do we make sure that we protect free speech while not turning a blind eye to the fact that there are, especially amongst the Jewish community in Canada, um, people who are very afraid and then frankly being intimidated in a lot of places. How do we, how do we square this circle? I think that when you're looking at the policing of those protests, you have to imagine that the police want to make sure that these protests remain largely nonviolent. And given the tenor of these protests, that's not simple. So you're starting to see a little bit around the edges of criminal enforcement for people brandishing flags. So most particularly the flag of the PFLP, uh, one of these protests organized by Samadun uh, in Toronto. Uh, this is something that they need to, to be wary of. The notion that their policing is going to create a more dangerous environment for, for, for everyone in society. Uh, so they have a very difficult job to do. But at the same time, we, we have to remember that a court system exists. And very much like what we saw in Ottawa, uh, the, te the temptation is to intervene in that, right? In the same way that the downtown Ottawa residents brought an injunction. And then at that moment, a judge of the Superior Court was looking very carefully at all the evidence of how the various communities were being affected. Mm -hmm. Something right is going on right now very much parallel to that. The a Jewish uh, community organization, B'nai B'rith, has brought an injunction about those Avenue Road and 401 uh, protests. Mm. And this is very positive because it shifts the decision-making to the correct authority. Right. So rather than giving the police this, this job of balancing how it affects various communities, at least that's the way it's perceived in the public sphere, right? Sure. You, you give that job to the, the body that can do that adequately, that consider the charter rights of everyone involved, that can really take detailed evidence under oath as to what the intentions of protesters are, exactly what the scope of what's going on is, how it's planned to continue, how it's affecting people. This is the correct body to adjudicate that. I mean, right. lawyers understand this. The, the idea of a, an injunction, possibly even a permanent injunction, is right squarely within the wheelhouse of the court system. And judges know exactly how to do it. So with the police, you can't expect them to fulfill that very same function as the courts. You can't expect uh, political authorities to do that. What you want to see is the police thinking about the public, thinking about safety, having the support of political figures to do that without fear, and then having the court system when someone says this is inadequate. You're not really thinking about how this is affecting us. And I think that with respect to B'nai B'rith and the Jewish community, I'm really glad that's moving forward because I want those concerns to receive more attention insofar as they just don't seem to be being considered within other systems and processes, perhaps because they can't, but it is right. absolutely necessary in this situation that those groups get a hearing about how they're being affected. Right. And so I guess what you're saying is that the injunctions are probably the most 
appropriate tool here, um, you know, because they're because they're put before a court, and the court is the one making the decision, balancing these considerations. A lot of the public discussion, and again, you mentioned the convoy. I think that the parallel is interesting here, right? Um, in both cases, the current protests and the convoy, there are sort of one side that thinks we should crack down and shut everything down, and the other side sort of say, well, let everything continue. When in fact, if you have a third party that's interested in the case of Ottawa local residents, in the case of uh, these protests in Avenue Road, the Jewish community, if they bring their concerns to a court, the court can then balance the, you know, the rights of freedom of expression with the concerns in the community and fashion a resolution which allows for you know, continued protests, but addresses. So in the case of the convoy, it was, of course, the uh, the, the minimizing of the, the horn honking, which was causing a lot of angst locally. And in the case of the uh, Avenue Road protests, it, it may be a matter of not allowing, you can have these protests, but you can't have them in a community which is, you know, which is primarily Jewish, which is designed to just, you know, sow fear and intimidation into a community. So, and, and that takes the um, pressure off the police to make those calls. The police can say a court has made those calls and we're just enforcing the, the injunction. Exactly right. And I think that we forget with respect to the Emergencies Act and the convoy protests, that something that was very much on the table was an injunction that would have said, Parliament Hill is the proper situs of protest, right? That this is the paradigmatic site for right. political expression. And believe me, there have been long-term protests on Parliament Hill, right? In various countries, there have been long-term even occupations Right. I mean, there's a there's an embassy of uh, Aboriginal people um, for several years, which is essentially a protest encampment on the site of the, the parliament in Canberra for, for a number of years. Right. That the courts would have said, we are going to tolerate this because this is political expression. We're not going to allow disruptive behavior within residential neighborhoods. But instead of allowing the courts to come down to a question of, OK, well, where should this be allowed and under which conditions? based on what people are saying about their motivations and how it's affecting them, that it's this all or nothing approach. Or so just to the, the, the terminus of the Rouleau Commission, this is being litigated right now, the Canadian Constitutional, um, the Canadian uh, Civil Liberties Association and the Canadian Constitution Foundation have said, even one person with a placard silently standing on Parliament Hill saying, I disagree with the Emergencies Act would have been subjected to criminal prosecution on yep. the basis of the Emergencies Act. That's clearly uh, a, a, an overextensive, overbroad response. So I'm really looking forward to getting a ruling on this, which I think is is, is coming very soon. But yeah, again, yes, injunction is the way that we do this. And when this is short-circuited in favor of something that is, you know, steering entirely in one direction or the other, that also contributes to a sense that the rule of law is deteriorating. Right. Yes. Well, I'm glad we're uh, wrestling with this. I know this is a, a topic that is of great concern to many people, and um, it is it is a struggle to balance the right to free expression with the right to you know people who who are are feeling uh, understandably harassed or intimidated. We don't want to turn a blind eye to that. So, uh, always as always, appreciate your insights, uh, Professor Alford, and I look forward to chatting uh, with you again. Likewise, Aaron. Always a pleasure.